Well, hello everybody, and may I wish you a very happy new year. 2020 already. Is it just me, or does it seem only like 10 minutes since we were welcoming in the year 2000? Incredible. Anyway, I'm hoping that you've had a great festive period and that you're now starting to get yourself ready for the year ahead. And um, having just done a, a spate of shows in December, have you noticed the way when lay people find out that you're a magician, they, they nearly always will say the same thing to you? One of the first things they'll say is, oh, that must be a busy time of year for you. Is, is, or is this your busiest time of year? And um, it's a funny thing, really, because I think years ago, uh, for me anyway, personally, it was. It was a standout month in which I did more bookings than I did any other time of the year. But these days, I have to say that certainly for me anyway, it's not the case. Yes, uh, I do a reasonable number of shows and I'm happy with the number that I do. But although the number of shows is less, actually... The number of shows I get in other months is kind of more. And so December, although it's okay, is no better than two or three of the other months that have been in the year as well. So when lady people say to me, oh, it, you know, it must be a really busy time of year. I, don't, I never know quite what to say to them. Because if you say, well, no, actually it isn't, then it makes it sound like, you know, you're hopeless and not doing any work. Whereas, in fact, you might be doing quite a lot. It's just that it's no better than perhaps some of the other months in the year. And you don't necessarily want to go into lengthy explanations. Well, actually, do you know, it's funny in my line, but there are sometimes other months that are equally as busy. You know, they don't really want that sort of amount of information. So you find yourself saying, yes, it is. Because that just sort of, you can move on with the rest of your life and you don't have to analyse it any further. I think, though, thinking about shows in December the one of the things that marks it out from other months is the variety of the type of show I think it is the most varied month of the year in terms of bookings one minute I might be doing a preschool the next minute I'm I'm in a, an old people's home entertaining the next I might be at a, a large corporate dinner next minute I'm over in a, a military barracks somewhere Next thing, it's a birthday party, an adult birthday party. You know, there are so many different types of show. And I would say that in the rest of the year, that isn't necessarily the case because it tends to be uh, more, in my case, birthday parties. I do a lot of birthday parties, 60th, 70th, 80th, that type of thing. And um, I do more of that and corporate events than I do anything else. Whereas in December because there are more events going on and more organisations or places looking to put on some entertainment, then the variety of shows is what changes and makes it different from any other month. And actually, I quite like that variety. Sometimes you can get in a bit of a rut. Um, you find yourself doing the same type of show again and again and again, which is fine. It's it's another day, another dollar type of thing. But it but sometimes it's nice to one minute be doing one type of audience, next minute entertaining a completely different demographic. And I and I do rather enjoy that. So that is the way, certainly for me anyway, that December is different from the other months in the year. It's the variety of shows. How is it for you? 
I was reading a very candid, I thought, article by Ian Brennan in the September issue of the Magic Circular magazine, in which he was talking about when he'd attended a Young Magicians Club event at the Magic Circle in London, and he was down to present three mini-lectures, as were a couple of other more experienced performers. And some of his comments about how his lecture was received by the three different groups that he did it for was, I thought, extremely interesting. And and as I say, it was a very candid thing because he pointed out that while two of the lectures that he'd done, or the, the same lecture, but the two group, two of the groups he'd done had gone down very, very well. But the third one, or it's actually the second one that he did, it hadn't. And it turned out when he tried to get some feedback from why he, he didn't feel he'd engaged with, the, with these kids, these particular group of kids. It was that the group had been made up of some very young magicians because the age range of the young, young Magicians Club is 10 to 18. So there was a group of young ones and then a group of older ones. And what Ian had done is he'd started off with his first trick. He'd aimed it at the younger ones. The older ones, having seen this, thought, oh, this isn't for us. This is to, this is aimed at the, at the little ones, at the ten-year-olds, and they switched off because it didn't, as far as they were concerned, they didn't connect with what Ian was trying to show. If they'd stayed more engaged later on in the lecture, he would have come to more knuckle-busting stuff, which actually they would have really enjoyed. But they they kind of they weren't prepared to wait. They didn't really want to know, uh, and so he was a little bit dis- well, He was very disappointed about that, and it le- led him to think about ways that you could get, avoid this happening again. And what he, the conclusion that he came to, and, and I think this is a correct conclu- conclusion, and it works particularly, I think, with young magicians, is that they, they get very excited or energised about a particular area of magic, whether it's cards, whether it's slights, whatever it is, there's one particular thing that they're working on. And what they don't actually necessarily want you to do when you lecture to them is to ignore the things they're interested in and show them a load of other stuff. Certainly this was the conclusion that Ian came to. What he was saying was it's actually better to find out what they're interested in, see what they're doing, and then help them to do it better or to progress it on a bit more, which he was able to do in the more informal parts of the day. Now, I think this is this is brilliant because this is exactly what, not only for young magicians, actually, but for, for a lot of magicians, adult magicians too, this is always the way to get people's interest. If you happen to put together a lecture where um, you, are, you are actually, that's why something like, let's say, uh, a niche convention where everybody is interested in, let's say, mentalism, then you're already talking, preaching to the converted because they are all interested in mentalism. Whereas if you take an all mentalism lecture to a general convention where you've got stage performers and kids entertainers and stand up comic magicians and so on, they may well not be interested in what you have to say and switch off. Now, I've been been aware of this for some time, this sort of narrowing things down to what people are really interested in and then trying to help them with that. Because um, I also ran an event, uh, it was about three or four years ago, in which I did exactly that. When people came, it was a very small number of people came, and I put on a a three-hour session in which I gave them various topics and suggestions for things that they 
could choose, I think it was something like 12 different topics or tricks or types of trick or areas of interest. And I asked them to choose eight and return that those choices to me. And then I put a lecture together based on what the majority of them wanted to see. Now, although this is not the perfect way to do it, what it did mean was that I struck a chord with most of them a lot of the time because they said, oh, I am interested in, let's say, commercial coin tricks. So I did a couple of commercial coin tricks for them and explained why they were commercial and explained how the workings and so on. So by by honing in like that on something that people are already interested in and then helping them with that, they get so much more benefit from it. Now, obviously, not every lecture can be based on that because you're often turning up at a venue, perhaps abroad or a long way from home. You don't know any of the people there and you don't get an opportunity to find out perhaps in advance what they're interested in. But nevertheless, the idea of getting them some sort of an idea of what people are interested in and then attempting to help them with that is certainly a solid one. And I think for small group tuition, it's the perfect way to go. And Ian obviously certainly found that. And his thought is that in future, that's what he will try to do. He will try to show them something that will inspire the kids. So show them some magic that is, wow, that's amazing. And then get questions from them and get ideas from them on the hoof as to what they would like to know about and then kind of take it from there. And if you've got enough magical experience, then you should be able to handle with what people ask. And and if you think about it, that's what a lot of top pros do. Um, When Daniels used to do used to do a lecture, he would often most of it would be to give it over to ask me something and I'll talk about it because that was what he wanted to to get what the level of interest was and what those topics might be and then he could branch out into it and give advice on on exactly what people wanted to hear so i I thought it was well done to him for that that particular article because i thought it was um, it was really honest and and because he was prepared to listen and he did say it's difficult when you're you're getting criticism from from magicians who are so young He nevertheless took it on board and hopefully in the future he'll be able to learn and do better following that experience. Ken Weber's book, Maximum Entertainment, is a meaty tome which purports to help any reader to improve overall their performance. Now, at this point, I have to admit straight away that I haven't as yet had a chance to read the book. But one of my magical friends is reading it and he uh, extracted from it one particular thing that he sent an email around to a few of us to kind of discuss. And that was, and I thought this was an interesting um, topic, and that was that Ken Weber has defined magic as being broken down into essentially three different types. Magic can be a puzzle, it can be a trick, or it can be an extraordinary moment. So just to sort of flesh that out a bit, this is how I would interpret that. A puzzle, okay, a puzzle is where you you do a trick and it's not particularly entertaining, but you don't know how it's done. As a lay person, you think, oh, so how do you do that then? And that's the only thing that really makes it in any way worthy of your time and consideration is the fact that it is a puzzle and you kind of feel, I'd like to work out how that's done. The second thing is a trick is probably what most of us do commercially. 
So tricks are perhaps routines. They're presentations that are entertaining enough. They might be very entertaining. And the actual magic itself works and it creates something interesting. But there isn't an absolute wow moment. There's not something that lifts you out of your seat. It's almost sort of run-of-the-mill type stuff. Nothing wrong with it, but it's it doesn't absolutely grab people and it's not the sort of thing I mean an example might be a four ace routine you show the four aces you put them out you put three cards on top of each three of the aces vanish and they all end up in one pile and no aces in the others that's a trick you know there's it's not the sort of trick that people are going to remember fondly and, and tell their grandchildren it's it's interesting enough and it's magical enough but it does as I say it doesn't lift you out of your seat and then the thing that perhaps that we would all love to aspire to performing, extraordinary moments, something incredibly visual or not just necessarily visual with mentalism. It could be something unbelievably mind blowing. How on earth did he know that type of thing? So that's that's what we are all probably aspiring to that in our act. Wouldn't it be great you can't perhaps do it with every trick, but wouldn't it be great to have a few extraordinary moments that people take away with them and want to tell others about? And all the top entertainers, I would suggest, do have that in their acts. But how do you take an extraordinary moment, which might be something flash, something visual, something very short that only lasts two or three seconds, how do you make that into something other than just a flashy moment because this is one of the problems that a lot of marketed magic has these days there's there is a moment in it that is looks fantastic and it's great for youtube clips and things like that but when you actually come to present it as part of an act or as in combination with other tricks to an audience a lay audience you need something more than just go oh and there it is ding done you need to build something around it. I suppose the challenge that we would all face is how to take that memorable moment and make it into something that leads up to or incorporates effectively this memorable moment and therefore makes the whole thing more substantial and makes the whole thing more commercial to do for lay people. So I think this is a very interesting concept and and the group amongst us um, had different ideas about this but um, I think we would all aspire so well if we're all doing tricks how many tricks can we move up to making it into or have an extraordinary moment because you might not think of it I know John Bannon has always said that he thinks that most tricks should feature a surprise somewhere where you're at the probably at the end where suddenly things are not quite as as the layperson thought they were going to turn out there's a little surprise at the end well, if you can have a, um, a surprise, could be an extraordinary moment, although it could be a small surprise, in which case it ne wouldn't necessarily be extraordinary. But nevertheless, surprise, the element of surprise could be incorporated into it. And so it's something I think that may be a good thing to think about. Look at some of your tricks and go, OK, this is a good trick. Does it have an extraordinary moment? Something that people are going to go away and say, God, I saw this magician and he did this and if it doesn't then let's try and find something that does so here we are then at the start of another new year and 
Some people, of course, they uh, like to start the year with all the best intentions. They make some New Year's resolutions, anything from losing weight to going to a particular place on holiday or whatever it might be. I wonder how many magicians make magical resolutions. Probably quite a few, but probably not as many as could. It's all too easy, isn't it, just to let things drift on and just do the same as you did last year. But I think sometimes it's quite good to focus on something that you haven't been doing for a while, perhaps, and think, maybe this is the year when I will get my act together and do it. And the thing that I would like magicians to think about is getting off their backsides and going out and attending one or two live magic events. Now, with one or two exceptions, Blackpool, The Session, there are events that are doing very well, but the majority of them, particularly one-day magic conventions run by clubs, they, they often struggle for numbers. And yet the actual fare that's being offered is often quite good. It's just that people have got, I think, a little bit lazy. You know, we, we, we tend to sit at home and we watch magic on our devices, whether it's your phone or your tablet or your computer or TV. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly able to get at any moment some of the best magicians in the world to entertain us. Well, when those when those magicians come to a local event, we think, oh, I, I don't need to go and see that or I can't be bothered to do that. Oh, it's the travelling, the cost, the overnight accommodation. It's all too much money. I can't be bothered to deal with the traffic. Oh, I don't know where the place is. Or you can think of a 100 reasons why you don't do something. But the truth of the matter is that if you continue to not support any event, even your local ones, um, if something's virtually on your doorstep, why wouldn't you want to go and support it? Unless it's something that is literally way out of your your um, area of interest. But nevertheless, isn't it time that we all supported these things? Because I think if we don't, the danger is that in relatively short order, some of these events are going to disappear and we're going to lose a lot of diversity. And all of the live stuff is going to be concentrated into one or two big events and all the other interesting niche ones are perhaps going to struggle. Now, certainly the Bristol Society of Magic, which I've been a member for a very long time, they have had this problem. They've had the Bristol Day of Magic for many, many years. And in recent times, they struggled to get numbers on the old format. And so they've changed it and turned it into something called Magic in the City. They've gone to a completely different type of venue. They've taken it into the middle of Bristol rather than being out at Western Supermare, where it was before. And this year will be their second year of running this new style event. Last year was reasonably successful, and they were pleased and certainly confident enough to do it again this coming year. And that is the sort of, and they're having that in May, and that's the sort of event that I mean when I say go and support something that is not one of the big events, but something which nevertheless can be very good value and great fun to go to. And there are a number of these events, whether it's the, the Jumbo Day down in Portsmouth or any of the other smaller events. If you haven't been to one for a while, why not say to yourself, this is my New Year's magical resolution. I'm going to choose two and I'm going to buy tickets and I'm going to go and support them. And that way, hopefully, we will we will see a slight upturn in the number of um, people that attend. And therefore, the organisers will feel encouraged to continue putting on what we, when we actually go, we all really enjoy. It's just whether we can be bothered to turn up in the first place. So be bothered. Make that your New Year's magic resolution.
When you're a young magician and you're just learning your art, it's easy to take certain things for granted. For instance, you take for granted that as a young person, your fingers are supple and they are flexible, which means that chances are you can make a good fist of learning and trying to perform some difficult sleight of hand stuff because your fingers will do it if you train them in the right way. Similarly, when you have long routines to remember, you learn them quickly and you retain it very easily. And so you don't have a problem when you need to bring it back out and perform it. And people's names, if you're performing someone and you ask somebody their name, then it tends to stick. Unless you have a particular thing about forgetting people's names. But most people, it sticks because it's just easy to remember. Now I have some bad news for you. When you get older, that doesn't always apply. It's amazing how your brain starts to forget things that you would never think it possible that you could forget. So when somebody tells you their name, 30 seconds later you think, you know, I cannot remember what that person's name was. And then you have to start putting into place, if you want to use that person's name, and I think if you ask it, ask for it, you should during your performance. It makes it more personal for the person that you're entertaining. And it's almost polite if you ask somebody's name to then start using it. You, you have to put strategies in place in order to reinforce that name when they say it to you so that you don't forget it. And the same is also true of sequences in tricks. I mean, card magic and coin magic, where there's a, a lot of different moves one after the other involved in some routine. When you're young, as I say, you, you just you learn it, you do it and it's in. When you're older, if you haven't, certainly if you haven't done it for a short while, you come back to it. And it's amazing how your mind can go completely blank halfway through the trick. And it doesn't have to be a trick that you haven't done for a while. I can remember an occasion, and this was, gosh, 10 or 15 years ago, when I was at a convention in Italy and a, a magician came up to my stand and he pointed to Wild Dice, my matchbox and dice trick, which I must have performed over the years virtually more times than any other trick in my range. And he asked me to do it and I started to do the trick and I got 15, 20 seconds into it and I suddenly realised I had absolutely no idea what to do next. And this was a, an extraordinary moment because what I realised was that actually I wasn't using my brain overtly to do this trick anymore because my motor memory had taken over. Because I'd done it so often, I autumn my hands automatically did what needed to be done and that particular routine required me to move matchboxes around and hold them in certain grips and so on and so forth so that automatic memory without thinking about it was really important on this particular occasion probably because I was I was tired maybe jet lagged or I don't know whatever it was that didn't work at that point my brain goes oh right so you don't know what to do next uh let me think about it and because I hadn't had to think about this for so long, because I'd always done it automatically, I couldn't remember what... And I had to say to the person, I'm really sorry, I can't remember how to do this routine. Could you come back later? I'm going to have to look it up. And I did. I had to read the instructions. And once I'd got the little bit that I got stuck on, the rest just flowed. And I didn't have to think about it again. 
So that's the sort of thing that can happen when you get older. You you start to have these problems of of retaining things and remembering things. And and as a result of this, you do have to put strategies in place. And one of mine is to mentally rehearse certain tricks on the way to the venue. Now, it could be if I'm going to put a trick into my strolling repertoire that I haven't done for a while, I will literally perform it and practice it a couple of times at home. That's natural. It brings it from the recesses of my brain to the forefront of my brain. So when I go to do it in performance, it feels more familiar. But if I don't need to do that or I haven't done that, then I will mentally rehearse some of the lines that I'm going to say and some of the the actual handling, if you like. And by doing that, I find that when I then come to perform, it does feel a lot more familiar. And I don't get this horrible moment where I think, oh, I don't know what to do next because there is really nothing worse than that feeling. And then you find yourself winging it. And, and often this can lead to a bit of a disaster, because with many of these tricks, of course, if you do get out of sequence, particularly card effects, you, you cannot recover. And the only way to actually... Well, there are two things you can do. You can either abandon the trick, which is probably the best thing, and just do something else. But the other the other way, of course, is to say, stop and say, sorry, I've lost my way. Let me start again. But and then you'd have to reset the whole thing and start from scratch because that's the only way that you can do it. So um, something to think about as you get older, you will probably have to, to change the way that you prepare for shows and the way that you go about learning things in order to make sure that they stick and that you can still do them. The vast majority of tricks that we get to review in Magic Scene these days are, are fairly lightweight they often consist, especially the close-up magic, it will consist of a possibly a DVD, although more likely these days it's going to be um, a link through to online video instruction. And if you get any props, then it's going to be something that you probably have to construct yourself. So it's got to be something that is with card, paper, glue, scissors, thread, you know, these sort of low value low cost bits and pieces and it becomes a diy project doesn't it now there's nothing wrong with that as such except that as i mentioned once before in a podcast it occurs to me that because there are fewer and fewer actual props being supplied of any quality or any note then i wondered what the second hand market was going place was going to look like in the future because a lot of these things with online video and so on and so forth, how do you sell that on? But the thought also occurred to me, apart from the, the second hand, the impact on the second hand sales, was what about collectors? Are collectors uh, going to be able, let's say in 50 years time, 100 years time, when they look back at the magic of, the, the, of this particular early part of this century, what items are they going to be looking to collect? Because most of the, especially, as I say, especially the close-up magic, but a lot of the stuff, that the, there is nothing tangible to it. And the instructions will long since be defunct, no doubt, as technology moves on. And so you wonder, what are they going to be collecting? Are they still going to be trying to collect things from what will then be 200 years or 300 years ago? Maybe they will. Is there, are there not going to be any more collectible items? These, I mean, there are some. There are some electronic stuff, uh, some electronic pieces of kit, 
which are extremely clever and intricate and which might become collectible, I suppose. Although, again, if it relies on current technology and the technology moves on, then it may be that they don't work anymore. Although, having said that, they would still perhaps be of interest to collectors. What about, are they going to collect ideas? I mean, they could still collect books, and books are full of ideas. But what about these these sort of intangible concepts that are basically being sold with with the DIY project that you make yourself but the actual concept the idea are they going to be collecting ideas well here are all the ideas of so and so um, and that they will not be generally available so they will become collectible I guess if books people have been saying that the demise of books but actually it's not really happened has it the digital age has not got rid of the printed word Books are still being produced, perhaps not quite so many, but the ones that are being produced are often collectible because they are worthy works and and therefore are going to presumably increase in value. But what else? Stage props, not so many stage magicians now, not so much need for stage magic. So therefore, the, the days of um, having wonderful illusions or or other not perhaps that big but other types of props boxes tubes i don't know flowers whatever it might be these things are not in demand like they were so less and less people are making them and and you're down now to worldwide probably to a relatively small number of dealers who manufacture that type of stuff and if it's not something physical, again, how are collectors, what are they going to, how are they going to get hold of this stuff? Is there going to be anything for them to collect? So interesting thought, I think. And uh, I don't know the answer, of course, but maybe it's something that is, is going to come to roost in a few decades time. Well, there we are. That's the first podcast for 2020. Thank you ever so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that and I will look forward to being back with you again next month for more. Bye for now.